I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, an Anawan man from the Northern Tablelands of New South Wales. The uncurated podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present and the 60,000 years of forgotten stories they've told of country. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. What does Aboriginal art look like? I guess there's a lot of red and yellow. Lots of colours. In year three, we did, you know, Aboriginal dot painting. Um, traditional. It's called the one that comes to mind is like just the dot painting. Marginalised. It's diverse. I think that there's no one single Aboriginal art. Absolutely not. Um, when you're dealing with hundreds upon thousands of different cultures and identities, the idea that there is just one word or thing that represents all of it is pretty, pretty silly, I think. Take Yongu artist Golombo Yunapingu's oil paintings. They're extreme in their ambition. Great canvases with delicate black cross hatchings studded with white points of light. The artist says her paintings are about the entire universe. Everything that can be imagined and all that is beyond imagination. Indigenous art is so much more than dot paintings. In fact, reducing the galaxy of Aboriginal expression to a single form is one of the ongoing effects of colonisation. But there's one First Nations artist in particular who defied categorisation. Trevor Nichols carved a new path for Aboriginal artists to express their diverse identities. This is the story of one of his early lost masterpieces. It was hidden for decades in the bowels of the University of Melbourne's art collection, until very recently. I'm Sasha Gadamaya, and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the University of Melbourne. Every week, we take an object buried in the university's 12 museums and uncover its hidden history. We want to know why these objects were forgotten in the first place and what that says about us. This week, reporter Sean Roost asks what we can learn from that single oil painting. A heads up to any First Nations listeners that this episode contains the names and voices of people who may be deceased. It also contains coarse language. I'm standing in the pristine, ultra-modern foyer of the Vice-Chancellor's office at Melbourne University, feeling like an imposter having gained rare access to this usually well-guarded room. The Vice-Chancellor isn't here, but adorning his walls are priceless works by some of Australia's most important Indigenous artists. But one piece in particular draws me in. It's called tightrope walking, and it shows a man balancing on a tightrope, perched between the chaotic grey cityscape beneath him and the vividly coloured open sky above. It's a significant and powerful painting by an artistic pioneer, Trevor Nichols. And until last year, the actual work was lost. And I suppose it's been hidden and not published for most of its existence. I'm standing next to Judith Ryan, the senior curator of the university's art museums and the former head curator of Indigenous art at the National Gallery of Victoria. She found the piece in a dark storage room where it had been lying for over 40 years. I went out on um, a little field work out to Tullamarine to our University of Melbourne store and then downstairs on the painting rack. Suddenly it blew my mind that this work was hanging um, and I just sort of thought, oh, oh, we've got a got a seminal masterpiece in the university collection. Nichols, who passed away in 2012 at the age of 63, 
donated the piece to the VCA, where he studied in the 1980s. He was a Nyanjeri artist, living and working in the city, and in this piece, we get a sense of his world. You can sense the entrapment of the figures and the containment and prison-like sense of the city, but you've also got the dollar signs because that's all about money economy and mechanisation and the stifling of nature and all of that. And then the figure is um, crying fire and the fire is sort of like the sense of spirituality and, and the dream time that, that he's, he's not um, able to access because he's trapped in another culture. Nichols was born in the Adelaide suburb of Finden to an Aboriginal mother and an English father. You know, he was born in 1949. The 1950s were, I think, particularly racist. I certainly observed the uh, negative attitudes towards Aboriginality, and he was always an Aboriginal. I mean, he didn't ever deny it. Um, and he was, he told me that he was treated badly, um, uh, bullied at school. I mean, he felt that he didn't fit into a lot of things. That's his longtime friend and art dealer, Angelica Tyrone. In 2009, Nichols spoke to the ABC about this sense of alienation. And, and although my people were from Loxon and the River, uh, and, and I just had an ordinary white kind of education, but at the same time, I, I was kind of felt that I was different. My, my spirit was from somewhere else, you know. The image of the tightrope walker sums up many of those feelings. That's a, symbolically a very powerful part of his life story because he's on the tightrope below it looks like a city scene and above his face is crying to the above to the spirit world or whichever way you want to interpret it and the aboriginal world for sort of some solace it was that tightrope as he expressed in his painting tightrope the fact of living in two worlds um But it was through art that Nichols was able to explore this identity. Angelica recalls the ferocity with which he painted. This focus on, on the art was really what drove him. And uh, when he woke up, that's sort of what he did. He painted. I think the diversity is probably the key to um, who he was, was his but a diverse background, a strong sense of Aboriginal um, heritage um, and identity, but also was interested in so many things that were about the arts, the Western world, as well as the Aboriginal art world. Um, and he com- he was able to combine that all together in, a, in, in an extraordinary way with a completely unique vision uh, of how to express it. It was this unique style that Nichols developed that led him to both national and international success. In 1990, he became the first Indigenous artist to represent Australia in the prestigious Venice Biennale, alongside Wonka Jonka and Kugaja artist Rover Thomas. I've left the austere offices of the Vice-Chancellor's building and made my way to the more inviting space of the Willen Centre for Indigenous and Cultural Development. It supports Indigenous art and artists at the university. The head of the centre, Tariki Onis, is a man of many talents. 
He's a Yorta Yorta and Jaja Rurung artist, opera singer, filmmaker, and academic. Tariki's a very busy man. As I arrive, he's wrapping up a conversation with a student, and directly after our interview, he's got another meeting with a respected elder. His colleague asks if he'll be long. I don't know, will I be long? Um, uh, depends, don't need I to. Guess. Yeah, yeah we, we can be... work around you. Just right. don't ask him any questions. So. <laughs> yeah, You're really, really sure. Sure. One yeah. question <laughs> takes me 20 minutes to answer. <laughs> Tariki met Trevor through his father, Lynn Onus, who was also a renowned painter and friend of Trevor's. Trevor, in my own childhood, being around, and the extraordinary journey that Trevor was on, a journey of trying to reconnect with identity and place and a sense of self. And I think it caused him a great deal of pain and consternation at times. But there was this tremendous sense of strength and joy in it. In Nichols' interview with the ABC, he describes how white Australia had a very set view of what it meant to be Indigenous, one that didn't include urban life. Uh, when the white man came to this country, what was considered traditional Aboriginal art didn't just stop and, and that there was people growing up in cities and suburbs, Aboriginal people, and they needed some sort of spiritual thing to, to guide them, you know, and, and me being a black-white fellow, that's, that's where I kind of picked up the thread. For Tariki, this history is at the heart of Trevor's work. So much of his work relied on Trevor assembling these stories trying to find an identity in a space that had largely been denied him, trying to find a way back to knowing. It talks about the legacy of of loss and dispossession and expropriation that has gone on before, and it almost selflessly invites us along for the journey as well. We get to see that work. We get to talk about what it means to live in two worlds where one doesn't really fit in either. Nichols, like many of his contemporaries, fought against these and other labels that attempted to define their art and what it meant to be Aboriginal. At a time when there were a great deal of expectations as to what Aboriginal art, in inverted commas, might look like, Trevor was really creating a space all of their own. Trevor spent his life subverting these expectations, refusing to be defined by anybody else's categories. You know, in those days in the 1980s, that people loved different terminologies that classified Aboriginal people. There was, you know, there was traditional Aboriginal artists, particularly in art. A traditional Aboriginal artist was generally someone who lived out in the bush somewhere, in, in, in far regional or remote areas, and made art. Oftentimes these also worked or was seen to work along with blood quantum. So you could replace tradition with other, with other disturbing and archaic terms like full blood, if you will. Then there was the, the urban Aboriginal artist who might be working in a space that was seen as being somewhat more rustic but still within greater city boundaries. And then you had the contemporary Aboriginal artist who straddled some of these areas but wasn't really seen as being quite as realistic or justified, perhaps, in their practice. Then you had artists like Trevor who would break these moulds. 
But Tariki says that this is sadly still something that Aboriginal artists face today. I think that we still live in a space where there are a lot of assumptions made about the nature of identity. Maybe not even just a lot of assumptions made, but a lot of rules created around how we can identify. I, with my own artistic practice, have found myself in numerous conversations and confrontations at times with with printmaking houses or galleries who are who are concerned that perhaps my my work is is not being made to look quote aboriginal enough but he says pioneers like Trevor have done a lot to break down these stereotypes and i think the legacy of Trevor Nichols is still that we have a conversation in this space the legacy of Trevor Nichols is that we are able to talk about everything that he was doing. The fact that Trevor asked a whole bunch of really hard questions at a time when it wasn't particularly safe or encouraged. The fact that Trevor sought to make greater and safer spaces for himself and by in so doing extend those to others as well. Tariki says it's this contribution that makes remembering Nichols' life and work so important. Trevor is sometimes a victim of, of the invisible and after all the work that he had done to make things so visible, I think it's, um, it would be a tremendous disservice were we not to do this. But we are. For the world-renowned artist Richard Bell, this labelling is something that he spent his whole career rejecting. I just refused you know, uh, their description of me. You know, I know who the fuck I am. I know what the fuck I am. You know, what do I need to, you know, to wait for them to classify me? I already classified myself. Bell said Trevor Nichols inspired many artists of his generation. In Brisbane, you know, like, um, we, we looked up to him. You know, like, um, we thought, well, fuck, you know, if this guy can make work like this, like, and he's saying all this, then we can, fucking, we can do this shit too. He says Nichols' selection as the first Aboriginal representative of Australia at the acclaimed Venice Biennale, alongside Rover Thomas, was a groundbreaking moment. Yeah, that, that was really significant. It sort of it included, you know, um, the rest of Australia, you know, like the, that, um, you know, the remote areas. Like Rover represented the remote areas and Trevor re- represented, you know, the, the metropolitan areas. The cities and towns, you know, where 80, 90% of the, of the average population is. We, we saw it as, as, as really important. Nearly 30 years later, in 2019... Bell himself staged a protest work at the Venice Biennale. He wasn't chosen as the official representative, but that didn't stop him. Instead, he built a replica of Australia's official Biennale pavilion, locking it up in chains with a sign saying, keep out. I made a model of um, the Australian pavilion um, and put it on a barge and sailed up and down past the Biennale during opening week. (laughs) It's kind of spectacular. The work protests against the exclusion of Indigenous people in both the art world and broader society. What it represents is it was a black, you know, a black box for white art, you know, and it was also a metaphor for uh, the, the country. You know? it's, it's a black country, but you've got to be white to get into it. In his own radical style, Bell is continuing Nichols' legacy of confronting the racist narratives of white Australia, albeit in a slightly different way. Yeah. 
very different one what he was doing. <laughs> he, he got in the tent. I had, to, I had to piss on the tent from a great height. <laughs> Back in the vice chancellor's office, looking at Nichols' piece and down over the very streets that inspired it, I think about the huge impact his life and career continues to have. Last year, an art prize was established in his honour, fulfilling a lifelong dream of Nichols to support emerging Aboriginal artists achieve their full potential. I asked Tariki to sum up what he thought Nichols' legacy was today. Trevor is one who has stood up and has left a a tremendous and lasting legacy for us to learn from, I think. And it will continue to inform our practices and our stories. It will continue to be a vital link in an unbroken chain that stretches back thousands of generations. It didn't end two and a half centuries ago with invasion, rather a practice of art making, and place making and identity that has gone on since the beginning of all things. Trevor and Trevor's work is just as vital to that process as any other piece, that is any other link that is in that chain. And we're all of us, black, white, brindle, wherever we come from, so much the richer for it. After being hidden away for 40 years, Nichols' piece Tightrope Walking is finally regaining the spotlight. It will soon play a starring part at the landmark exhibition 65,000 Years, A Short History of Australian Art at the Ian Potter Museum. But Nichols' legacy goes far beyond this one piece. In refusing to be boxed in, he reimagined what Indigenous art could be. And in breaking out of the straitjacket placed on him by others' expectations, he allowed the artists who came after him to more freely be themselves. That story was reported by Sean Roos and co-produced with Praline Carer. Sound design was done by Praline Carer. Next week, we go all the way to the streets of Ballarat to learn more about the forgotten people of the Australian gold rush. And so the European miners were envious of the success of the Chinese miners. So uh, there were a series of riots or incidents where Chinese were driven off the gold fields. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Sasha Gadamire, the host of Season 2. Our series producer is Praline Kerr. Sound design is by Sean Roos and Thomas Phillips. Logo design is by Caitlin Duan. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. Special thanks to everyone at the Museums and Collections Department at the University of Melbourne. This is a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism. <laughs>